service where we dismiss our little ones who are third grade and under down the hall for their class. Miss Jennifer and Miss LaQuandra are in the back of the room in the Blue Redeemer kids shirts on. Uh, Miss Allison's also making her way down there. Uh, so if you've got a kid who's third grade or under, do you like them to go to their class this morning while we open the scriptures for our sermon? Uh, they can head right down that hallway there. And we've got some great workers who are going to teach them and care for them as we open the scriptures together. If you're new with us, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're glad you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, when you came in, you may have found a card like this somewhere around where you are seated. On one side of that card is a place for some information about yourself. Other side of that card is a place for a prayer request. If there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. If you fill out one of these cards, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. You can drop it there on your way out. We'd love to connect with you, send you some information about who we are at Redeemer, or just pray for needs that are in your life. Uh, if you're online or you'd rather, you're in person, either way, and you'd rather do that electronically, you can go to the homepage of our website, find all that same information there, and submit it electronically as well. If you've got a Bible, turn with us to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. We started a new series last week called Foundations, looking at framing out a Christian worldview in the context of a culture that is very, very squishy and seems to be shifting day by day. And we said last week that the best place to go into, as we sift through all the shifting sands within our culture is back to the beginning. And so we've come back to Genesis chapter 1. And over the next several months, we'll work through Genesis, all the way through Genesis 11 together to consider how we frame up a Christian worldview uh, in light of the times in which we live. And so this morning, our text is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. I'll read it for our hearing this morning. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me. and You can follow along there as we read together. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, we find these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. You know, when we talk about the formulation of a worldview, we said last week one of the biggest questions is why is there something instead of nothing? But one of the next biggest questions is what on earth am I here for? Who am I? And why am I here? And that question centers around the idea of our identity. And we live in a day and time in which identity is a buzzword, right, across all media platforms and within our own community. I was driving through town on Friday after picking my son up from Rockwell High School um, and we were taking a friend of his home, and we got behind this vehicle that had several stickers on the back of the vehicle, and one of them said, girls gone jeeping, right? And so uh, I, I took from that that she probably enjoys driving jeeps, right, and getting muddy and dirty out in the fields going four-wheeling. 
But then across the back of the vehicle, it was like a little hatchback. It wasn't actually a Jeep, right? Um, but across the back of the vehicle, uh, on the hatchback glass, it said this, I identify as dot, 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 and then the word Jeep, right? And so her identity, right, was the vehicle that she loved driving, okay? Uh, but that's, 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 It's kind of humorous to me, but in a very real way, there are folks who are struggling with identity to such a degree uh, that that's not a humorous statement. Uh, They're wrestling with understanding who they are, wrestling with understanding why they're here, wrestling with understanding what the purpose is for their lives. And as we look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and following, the Christian response to that question of why am I here, who am I, we find answered for us as Moses writes these words. And so this morning, what I want us to do is begin looking at the image of God and how it relates to our identity, to understand who we are and why we're here. So we want to see what is the image, how does it impact the way that we view ourselves, and then what we ought to do about it. So that's where we're headed. But first of all, what is the image of God that the Bible says that we were made or created in? And when I talk about the image of God, what I'm talking about is this, church. Very specifically, it is our unique capacity to reflect God's glory. Our unique capacity to reflect God's glory. Now, why do I say this? Well, first of all, I'm not the only one who says this. There's a lot of theologians and scholars throughout the history of the church right up through the modern day, who identify the image of God that we were created in with this unique capacity that humanity has to reflect back to God and out to the world His glory. But second of all, in Genesis 1.27, we see God taking counsel with Himself and then saying, let us make man in our image. Now, I want us to observe several things about that statement this morning. First, it is unique among all the other creative acts recorded in Genesis chapter 1. Unique. Up until this point in the story, we see God saying over and over and over again, let there be, let there be, let there be. On each day of creation, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, it is let there be. And then it's followed by some refrain in the form of, and so it was. Okay, so over and over again, you see those, that pattern repeating itself until you get to day six. And in day six, you no longer see let there be, but you see let us make. There's a break in that pattern there. As it moves from the impersonal let there be to let us make, a very personal engagement that God has in the formation of humanity. In fact, rather than just speaking men and women to existence, we're told in Genesis chapter 2 that God forms the man from the dust of the earth and then he breathes life into his nostrils. So God is up close, personal, intimately involved in the work of creation. He's not just saying uh, of mankind, he's not just saying let there be right, the heavens and the earth, let there be the sea and the dry land, let there be all the fishes and the birds and the beasts and the mammals he says let us make and then he breathes life into the first man God is up close personally and intimately involved in addition instead of and it was so at the end what we see is this threefold account so God created man in his own image 
in the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. Followed by a threefold blessing. God bless them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over all other forms of life. And so instead of, and let there be, and it was so, you have let us make and this blessing that God pronounces upon our first parents. In addition, up to this point, when God creates other forms of life, such as the things that creep along the ground or the livestock or the birds or the fish, he makes them according to their kinds. He says, let the earth bring forth livestock according to its kind. In other words, God has conceived in his mind the type of kinds that should be. And whenever he says, let there be, that's what he's bringing forth is the kinds that he has conceived in his mind. And yet when God forms humankind, they're not made according to their kind but according to his image and likeness in other words the design specs the blueprints for humanity are formed and drafted off of God himself they have this unique relationship with their creator that the rest of creation does not share the personal attention, the threefold blessing, the blueprints for humanity, each of them speak to men and women, male and female alone, as being created in the image of God. So what about this capacity to reflect God's glory? Listen, the same language of being created in the image and likeness of God that's used in Genesis 1.27 shows up in Genesis 5.3 whenever we read about Adam bearing a, having a son whose name was Seth. And it says this, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. What the author of Genesis is saying is this, just as Seth bore resemblance to God, to, 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 so also Adam bore resemblance to God. Now listen, whenever I meet someone new and my son is standing right next to me, particularly now that he's almost as tall as I am, okay, he's looking me eye to eye, square in the face, and I introduce myself and then I introduce him as my son, people inevitably say something like, well, I would have guessed that, right? Because my son bears a resemblance to me, right? Because he is, he, he was formed to some degree, right? Out of a resemblance, a ref, he's a reflection of who I am. Right? Some of his physical features, even a few of his mannerisms. I feel very sorry for him. Okay? Um, you can commiserate with him after the service. Just come and find him. But he bears my resemblance. He's a reflection of me. And in the same way, church, that he is a reflection of me, Seth was a reflection of Adam. So we as humankind are reflections of the God who made us. We bear his resemblance. We're made in his image. To put it as simply as I possibly can, being made in the image of God means we're created as glory reflectors. To be glory reflectors. See, while there are so many ways in which inanimate creation, right? The hills and the mountains that are alive with sounds of music, right? There's so many ways in which inanimate creation and even other living creatures, right? Declare the glory of God. Like in Psalm 119, the heavens, or Psalm 19, I'm sorry, the heavens declare the glory of God, Right? So many ways in which inanimate and other animate creations declare God's glory, it is only humanity that reflects God's glory. We reflect it back to God and out into the world as we, as we reflect God's worth and we reflect God's weight, how significant He is. We reflect God's splendor and majesty, His beauty and His magnificence. We're made as glory reflectors. 
a unique capacity to reflect God's glory. That's what it means to bear the image of God. So what does that mean for you and I as we think about who we are? How does it impact the way that we understand ourselves? Listen, I will say it to you this way this morning is this, is that we are creatures, not our own creations. We are creatures, not our own creations. See, not only does God make us in his image, but we're told he also forms us or makes us in his likeness. His likeness. Now, likeness means that while we bear God's image, we're not God. Okay? We're not little gods. Right? We're not divine emanations from God. Okay? We're creations of God, not emanations of Him. Okay? We don't have like this new age divine spark within us all. Okay? That's not at all what the Bible would teach. As Bruce Waltke, the one of the foremost commentators in the Old Testament, said, he said, the important addition of likeness underscores that humanity is only a facsimile of God and hence distinct from Him. Whereas, he says, the image of, the, of gods or deity in the ancient world was equated with that god or deity itself, the word likeness serves to clearly distinguish God from humans in the biblical worldview. He says we're a facsimile of God. I love the way that he phrases that. Let's see if I can break it down for you like this. In 1964, the Xerox company, okay, they introduced and patented, by the way, uh, what many consider to be the first commercialized version of the fax machine. Went back a lot further than I thought it did, right, in 1964. And what that fax machine did, now listen, I know some of you are too young to know what a fax machine is, right? You've never known a world that you could not scan a document and then email it to someone, okay? But a fax machine essentially was a breakthrough in technology that allowed you to send documents long distance over telephone lines. And so you would type in the number of the receiver's fax machine, then you would run the document through your fax machine, and then as it transmitted that data to the receiver's fax machine, it would print out a copy or a fax or a facsimile of the document that you had put in your fax machine and the receiver's fax machine. It would show up to them. So you could transmit these documents long distances without having to wait for something to be delivered in the mail. It's a glorious technological innovation. And yet, there was a limitation to it, right? Because there was a difference between the original and the fax. There's a big difference because while the facts could reproduce all of the information that was on that document, it could not reproduce the original. It couldn't produce the original. All right, so for instance, if you tried to fax your birth certificate to someone and your birth certificate had an embossed stamp from a notary in the county in which you were born and it had perhaps a particular color and texture to the paper that set it off as an official document of that county. Right? If you tried to fax somebody a copy of your birth certificate, right, it would capture all the information that's on the birth certificate, but it would not transmit the same color, it would not transmit the same embossing from the stamp, and it would not transmit the same texture from that paper. Right? Because it was a reproduction, it was a facsimile, it was a copy, it was not the original. So when we say we're made in the likeness of God, what we are saying is that while we bear the image of the original, we are not the original. We are creatures, not our own creations. That's what it means to be made in His image, to bear this have this capacity to reflect God's glory in the world. And yet in a world, church, 
that exists after Genesis 3, following Genesis 3 in the fall, when sin enters into the world, humanity's problem is this, that we live our lives as if we're the original and not the facts. It's our greatest problem, as if we're the original document and not the facsimile. See, we've made conscious decisions to reject our role as glory reflectors, and we want to take on a role of being glory projectors. We want to project our own glory rather than reflecting the glory of God. We want to make a name for ourselves rather than magnifying the name of God. As one past, retired pastor, John Piper, said, he says, we've moved from wanting to reflect his face to wanting to take his place. We don't like the thought of being a mirror which has no beauty except in the thing that it reflects. And I'm going to continue to quote Piper when he says, it's not wrong to want to be significant. There's nothing wrong with that. It's wrong if you want your significance to reside in yourself instead of the one you reflect. It's not wrong to want to be important. It's wrong to want your importance to be in yourself instead of the one you reflect. It's not wrong to boast, but let him who boasts, Piper writes, boast in the Lord. See, the fallen instinct that has exploded in our age is to want your significance to reside in and of yourself. To want your importance to reside in and of yourself. To want your boasting to be about yourself. As a result, here's what's happened. We've collapsed the distinction that's long been held in the Bible between creator and creation. We've collapsed that distinction and said there is no difference. So I can be the determiner of my own destiny. And when that, when that distinction gets collapsed, here's what happens. All sort, our self-understanding in all sorts of ways becomes very, very distorted and confusing. Right? I, I, saw, I was driving down the interstate uh, earlier this week as well, and I saw, um, as I was waiting in traffic on I-30, like is the bane of many of your existences as well, um, I saw a, 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 car, a, a, big, a, big, a big rig carrying one of those carnival trailers, like it was moving toward a fall carnival somewhere or a fair somewhere, right? And one of the mainstays at most fall carnivals or fairs is a hall of mirrors, okay? Now, when you go into the hall of mirrors, it's not like putting on your makeup in the bathroom in the morning, ladies, right? Or guys fixing that, you know, that one part of your hair that wants to just stick up and not lay down, right? Or some of you are like, what, what hair? I don't have anything to speak of up there. But it's not like looking at yourself, preparing yourself for the day in the mirror in your bathroom. Because when you go into the hall of mirrors, those mirrors are shaped in different ways, all in order to project a distorted image of yourself. And so you could have someone who is like 4'11 and 70 pounds go into that hall of mirrors, and they appear to be 6'2", 250 Right? It has this distorted vision of who they are. Or you have someone who's 6'2 and 250, and they go in and they look like they're a mouse. Okay? Right? It, it blows stuff out and shrinks stuff up. As you look into the, all those mirrors around you, you get this distorted reflection of who you are. 
And listen, whenever we say we're no longer content to be a mirror reflecting back to God and to the world His glory, His beauty, His splendor, His magnificence, but we want to project our own glory and our own splendor and make a name for ourselves, what ends up happening is we have these distorted visions and views of ourselves just like in that hall of mirrors where we do not see ourselves as we are. And we're putting forth an image to the world that is not an accurate representation of who we are as one who's been made in the image of God. When we reject the role of reflecting God's glory, we end up with all of this distortion. So what do we do about it? Let me give you three things this morning. First, you've got to build your identity on God's image. Build your identity on God's image. There's really only two ways you can go about building or constructing identity. You can build your identity on the image that you construct and project, right? Which is what every kid in high school tries to do, okay? I'm thinking back to my high school days. I can remember, right? Um, All the different identity groups that existed on my high school campus. I can remember the... I'm trying to think of terms I can use that would be appropriate in this setting. I can remember, right, the jocks, okay, by the way that they dressed and the way they projected themselves to everyone else who's around them. I can remember, okay, the, the, the preppy kids, all right, always had press collars, right, always had press shorts, okay, always were the, were the fashionable kids on campus, right, they were projecting an image about who they were. I can remember... It's what we called them back then, the goat ropers, all right? And so these were like the cowboys, all right? They came in boots and wranglers and cowboy hats. I mean, they had the, 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 the denim shirts that were pearl snaps. I mean, the whole works, the whole nine yards, okay? And so they were projecting an image about who they were based upon how they dressed. We had some of the goth-type kids who were black fingernails and black makeup and black dress and that whole phase, right, that they went through. You had all these types of individuals on the high school campus that were trying to project an image of who they were. Instead of building their identity upon the image in which they were created, they were building an identity on the image they were projecting. And listen, if we've been created as glory reflectors, those who are destined to reflect God's glory back to Himself and to the world around us, And if that means that we are not our own creations, but we are creatures, then we have to learn to build our identity on the image in which we were created, not the one that we're trying to project. See, our identities are a product, biblically, they're a product of an external reality, not our internal feelings. Something objective, not something subjective. As one pastor wrote in a blog that he posted, he said, We are to see our identity as a gift, one we can receive humbly and joyfully. We're not meant to define ourselves, discover ourselves, express ourselves, or design our identities according to our own creative geniuses. No, our existence, plainly said, comes from, results from having arisen from the plans of another. In other words, we are human beings. And as such, we find who we are, he says, use a Latin term, extra nos, by discovering the intentions of our, our maker had in mind whenever he made us. He said extra nos is a classical theological term which points to Christ's righteousness that comes to us from the outside. 
But it's not just our saved identity that's given to us. If you're in Christ, it's not just who you are in Christ that's given to you. But our very humanity comes from the outside as a gift from God, as those made in His image. He goes on to say, God's designs, of course, are thorough, far-reaching from our deepest inner parts of our outer selves, encompassing everything from the longings of our hearts to the hairs on our heads. Even more, we will only find flourishing. We will only enjoy what's true, what's beautiful with our words, thoughts, feelings, and actions. Indeed, the whole of who we are when it's sitting flush and plumb with His careful plans. I love this. He says, we don't have to come up with anything great. We only need to live and move and have our being one day at a time as the people He made us to be. That's what it means to be created in His image and find your identity in His image, not the one you're trying to broadcast to the world on YouTube or on Instagram or on Facebook. And listen, that does, if, if, if you will build your identity on the image in which you were made, listen, it will bring you freedom and rest. Let me tell you how. First of all, it will bring you freedom. You're able to enjoy the freedom of conformity. Listen, when you live as a glory projector by trying to build your identity on an image you create, it's confusing, exhausting, and enslaving. Because you'll never be certain of who you are. In a culture where everything about your identity is up for grabs, including the pronouns by which you want others to refer to you. Right? When you have limitless choices because nothing is bound any longer by an external objective reality, but now everything's based upon internal subjective feelings. When nothing is no longer bound or constrained by external realities, one Polish author, Eva Hoffman, she said it this way, she said, we have choice in every area of our lives, from career to partners, to our own sexuality, the sexuality of our partners, to how we want to have children, when we want to have children. We live in a very individualistic society, so all of these choices have to be made individually. In other words, we can't depend upon anyone else or any kind of common shared values. We've got to look inside of ourselves and find who we want to be. What we, what, we, what we think, what we value, what our values are. We need to figure all this out from within ourselves because there's no sort of general code or value system which tells us how to proceed about this very wide range of choices. And at the end of the day, all of those choices compounded on top of one another become exhausting, exhausting as we try to search inside for who we are rather than looking outside, seeing an objective external reality giving us meaning and purpose and identity. What I like to say when I talk about this a lot is learn from the example of the fish. Okay? Listen, I I love to catch fish. I catch them on a pond bank and on a boat deck and on a dock and wading in a river and in an ocean and wherever you... There's water. I'll wet a line. Okay? And one thing that I've learned over the years about fish is this, is that a fish is absolutely free when it's in the water. Absolutely free. But it is slowly dying when it's outside the water. And the reason is this, because the fish was made for the water. It was made for it. It was made for that restriction. So the fish, if the fish is smart, which fish, most fish are not smart, because they have little pea-sized brains. But if the fish is smart, then the fish cannot say, well, today I think I want to be a bobcat roaming the shores of the lake. I've seen those jokers out there. They look very majestic. I want to be one of those. 
Or the fish cannot say, today I want to be a turtle, and I want to sunbathe all day long on that log right there. It's going to flop up there and lay out. And the fish cannot say, today I want to be a snake, and I want to curl up in that bush along the bank and just lay and wait for something to swim by. Right? Because when the fish curls up in the bush or lays out on the log or flops up onto the bank, it is slowly dying. Because the fish cannot survive. It can't flourish. It is no longer free. It's bound now because it was made for the water. It was made for the restriction of the water. And if a fish, if a fish can embrace its nature and enjoy life and freedom in the water, rather than defying its nature and living outside the water and slowly dying, then how, at that lower form of life, then how much more so is that true about the highest form of life that God has made, the pinnacle and climax of His creative work in man and woman? Those made in the very image of God, how much more so will they destroy themselves by rejecting the restrictions that were fit to their nature? And one of the ways that you enjoy the freedom of conformity is by learning to conform. Listen, listen, some of us don't like that word conform, all right? But the Bible over and over again says we're being conformed to the image of Christ himself. But listen, you're learning to conform your inner desires to your external realities, right? Conforming your inner desires to your external realities I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, there's something which magic and applied science or technology, he says, share in common. While separating them from the wisdom of earlier ages. He says, for the wise men of old. In other words, people who came generations ago. He says, the cardinal problem of human life, the biggest issue in human life, was how to conform your inner desires, your soul, to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. He says, but for the modern man, the biggest problem in human life, the cardinal problem, is how to conform reality to your wishes. And the solution, he says, is a technique. It's a procedure. See, what it means to enjoy the freedom of conformity is to say, listen, the biggest issue in my life is not me trying to figure out how I can make my outside fit my inside, but learning to live by conforming my inside to the external realities that God has created me with. Right? Dying to self in the water, being raised to this new kind of life, saying, God, I am no longer in control, but you are. I will yield Right? I'm tapping out. I'm not going to wrestle or fight with you any longer. And in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, we read this. Male and female, he created them. See, a Christian worldview, the set of lenses through which we see and understand the world around us and ourselves tells us that objectively we were created as gendered beings with two options, male and female. And I want to tell you something. There is a freedom in embracing who God has objectively and externally made you to be. You don't have to be enslaved to your inner desires that change day to day, that change week to week, that change year to year, that change decade to decade. Because hopefully many of you in the room are old enough, wise enough, and smart enough to know that the things that you wanted 15 years ago, 
you now realize were absolute foolishness. So enjoy the freedom of conforming to that external reality that God has made you in His image to reflect His glory. But not only do you get freedom, but also, second of all, you get rest. Because you can rest in an identity that's not found in your performance. See, another way fallen humanity is trying to fashion an identity for itself is through how well they perform. There are many people today who are trying to find an identity for themselves and how well they do in athletics or academics or as teachers and educators or as business leaders or as parents. And yet in each of these instances, listen, if you're building your identity on your performance, I want to tell you something. When you fail, you're going to lose who you are. You're not going to know who you are when you're not successful at whatever it is that you set yourself out to do. Earlier this week, I was listening to an interview by uh, the head coach of a little league team out of Pearland, Texas, in the Houston metro area. And Pearland, Texas, had made it all the way to the Little League World Series this year. And they played, I think, a total of five games there. The tournament's a double elimination tournament. So you lose once, you play in the elimination bracket, you can work your way back and win the whole thing, right? The double elimination. So they played five games. When they experienced their second loss, uh, their road toward the championship came to an end. And they were interviewing the head coach of this Little League boys baseball team, all these 11 and 12-year-olds who were out there, spent their whole summer playing, right, as, as the all-star team out of their own little, little league into their district and into their region and into their super regional and then on into the Little League World Series. And as they were interviewing the head coach, he made an astonishing statement that I thought was spot on. He said this about their loss. He said, this is not our identity. It does not define us. This loss does not define who we are. And the only way someone can say something like that is if you know that your success or your failure in athletics, in academics, as a parent, as a business person, right? If you know that that does not define you, that your dignity, value, and worth are not found in the bottom line of your business. They're not found in the returns of your 401k. They're not found in your victories on the field or your grades in the classroom, students. They're not found in the teacher of the year or the parent of the year awards. Not found in any of that. But there's an objective external identity that you receive that bestows upon you dignity, value, and worth that none of your success can add to and none of your failure can strip away from. And there's rest in that. And listen, we know this to be true because of the rest of the Bible, church. You see, while the Old Testament teaches us that one, each of us bear the image of God, the New Testament reveals that there is one who is the image of God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, while all of us are facsimiles, Jesus is the original. All of us are made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. And while the image of God, our it was distorted in the fall, right? Because we see ourselves in this hall of mirrors now, not truly reflecting back to God His value, worth, magnificence, splendor, and beauty. It was distorted. Many theologians would say it was defaced, but it was not erased. 
That capacity still exists within us. And yet God had a plan to restore what was lost. And the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ, the fullness of God was put on display in human history. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 1.19, For in Him, in Jesus, the one who is the image of the invisible God, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of His cross. And one of the things the cross means for us is that though we have all lived at one time or another, every person in this room can raise their hand and say, at one time or another, I have been a glory projector rather than a glory reflector. Right? I've taken the place of God and no longer desired to reflect His face. All of us have sinned. And the, the just punishment for that is separation from God. Yet God does something astonishing. He sends the one who is His image. The one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. And He sends Him to shed His blood upon the cross to reconcile Himself with everyone who had attempted to rob Him of His glory by projecting their own. That's what this great God does. It means if you trust in Christ, listen church, the war between you and God, between glory projector and glory reflector, that's over. And once that war comes to an end, your identity is not based on your performance. But listen, here's the beauty, it's based on Jesus' performance. It's not about what you've done, but about what, about, about, about what He's done. And you can rest in that identity as one, listen, I'll say it this way, in both creation and salvation, your identity is given to you objectively. You are formed in your mother's womb as a gift, and you are clothed in Christ's righteousness as a gift. Both. Both. Embrace that. Build your life on that. Conform the inner desires that grate against that to this external reality that in your womb of your mother, God was there knitting you together. And in salvation, God was there in His Son shedding His blood that you be clothed in His righteousness. So rest in that identity. It's not based upon how well you obey today and how badly you failed yesterday. Because if you're anything like me, that changes from day to day. One thing that I've learned over the last 20 years of walking with the Lord is that there is, a, there is a steadiness to who I am because it's not based upon how well I perform. So church, we're made to be glory reflectors, creatures, not our own creations, to enjoy freedom and rest by building our identity, building our identity on the image of God. So this week, I wanted us to take a look at what the image is. It is that unique capacity we all have to reflect God's glory, to live as glory reflectors. Next, the next three weeks, we're going to take a look at how that image expresses itself in relationships, in righteousness, and in rule. Three domains of life in which theologians have historically said, this is what the image does as it shows itself in the different areas of our lives. Right. So this is what it is. Glory reflectors, mirrors, mirroring back to God, His glory. This is what it does. It impacts our relationships. It impacts our righteousness as we live our lives before Him and others. And it impacts our rule, the dominion that He's given us over the earth. 
That's where we're headed the next three weeks, and I'm looking forward to it because I think some of this stuff that may be abstract for you this morning is going to be pressed into very concrete realities in your life. So I hope you'll join us next week as well. Let's pray together. Father, today, we thank you for those who have taken a step of faith that you've been gracious to save. Father, we pray for your sanctifying work in their lives. We pray you continue to form them into the image of your Son. We pray that for ourselves as well, Father, even for those who've been baptized many years ago. Father, we ask that you, through this morning, even through witnessing the baptism of our brothers and sisters, God, that you would reignite our love for you if it's grown cold. Father, that you would bring us back to conforming our life to the image of your Son if there are areas in which we have been wrestling with your will for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to not only understand our role as those who are to reflect your glory, but you help us to embrace it. Embrace it. We would live as men and women made in your image, not as those who are making and projecting images for ourselves. And that we'd find the freedom and the rest in that that you intended as we build our identity upon your image that every human being bears. I pray for some this morning, God, that they would be set free from the endless quest of marketing themselves by producing their own image and their own glory. And Father, for those who have been on the rat race of performance, trying to create an identity for themselves of a well-respected individual, Father, I pray you help them to find rest. Knowing that there is no amount of success that can add to their identity and no amount of failure that can strip it away. And when we do fail, help us to return to the cross where the one who is your image, the one in whom is your fullness, bore our sins to make peace between you and us, to reconcile us to yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing together as we respond.